0: My name is Jacques Fredarn and I'm the director of the Insight Prison Project, which is a, a community nonprofit that functions much like a school, really, in San Quentin State Prison. It um, runs a weekly load of about 18-19 programs on a variety of uh, topics. Um, There's a yoga program, there's a meditation program. There's also things like positive parenting, violence prevention. There's a a victim-offender healing dialogue program where the two parties are brought together. And there's a lot of peer education where we uh, encourage prisoners to teach other prisoners. um, Substance abuse, things like that. And, uh, I'll probably be talking a lot about that. Because I'm not really much of a Dharma teacher in the true sense of that word, where I would know a bunch of sutras for y'all and comment on it. Um, so my own path is, is really um, connected to service. And, uh, I've learned service, the path of service is very sophisticated. It seems uh, like sort of an afterthought, often, where you do service because you want to give something back, or it's, you know, part of the path. But it's really a way to knowledge in itself. I'm learning. And uh, and so I'm, I'm jazzed, I'm totally grateful to do what I'm doing and uh, would love to talk to you about it. I made a reference to saying something about welcome. And welcome is something we often uh, take a pause on when we start a new group in the prison. And we welcome the man into the circle and There's often an experience of shame connected to being a prisoner. There's a lot of... I don't want to romanticize prisoners. Let me, let me get that straight. We work with men that come voluntarily to the program and uh, we think we need prisons. There's just a way to do it. That's all. Um, but there is a an experience of shame connected to being a prisoner. You have a number, you have you know, you know, a blue shirt, and a pair of jeans. It says on it, CDC, prisoner. It's interesting. It, the department renamed itself um, California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation. And so they changed that in all the letterheads, except on the clothing of the prisoners. It still says California Department of Corrections. Um, But what we tell the man is, you know, you're welcomed here into a different way to hold what happened in your transgression. So that it is not so much, um, you're fundamentally flawed and and you've been picked up and put in the right spot here, but you radically forgot who you were when you did what you did. Or perhaps even better, you radically forgot to ask, who am I? And what motivated you. And so here's an opportunity to remember. Together. In the true sense of that word. Remember. And. Uh, I think that's in essence. What we do too when we sit. I just love this feeling. In the room here. Uh, when you all sit together. You know that connecting. To the sentient experience. It's like we're all lovers, and we even have positions that we get to be lovers in, right? These sitting positions. And um, I think just that is so special. I just want to take a moment to say that. Because it's welcoming ourselves back to our own sentience. And, and saying, okay, there's something to trust here. I may not understand it, and you know, I It may be interrupted every three seconds by some thought or some voice, but I'm going to take this moment to do this and connect and come home here. And God, you know, the whole world seems to be so much the other way around, where it's sentience that serves cognition or serves the mind. And, you know, there's science from that all around us pollution wars etc really offenses to sentient beings out of ignorance so i think of you know a place like this and, and what we're trying to do in the prison as opportunities to create a little small sentient culture where we can tap into the inherent capacity of the body for wisdom, and I think, most humbly put, that's that's really the best we can do. Because if we try to milk it in some way, then you know it begins to tilt, and and it becomes very subtly, very trickly, very sneakily, often yet another thing, another ism, another mind game. And uh, there is that thing. There is that inherent capacity of the body for wisdom. And you come, you know, you come to rest, you come to trust. Those words are connected. You come to rest, you come to trust. And something comes under you that begins to inform you. You know, we have as a way of speaking, there's this human condition, we have this mental process, we have emotional process, and we have this sensory process. And in our culture, there's like an overemphasis on the mental process. You have, you, know, you get educated, you have thoughts, you have thoughts about thoughts, and you know, you make cases about it. And then there's the emotion, it's sort of under emphasized, particularly for men. That's something we talk a lot about in the privilege amongst ourselves as men. You know, how there's the feeling in the feeling. And when you're in the sort of male role belief system, and you're in that box, how hard it is to get to the feeling in the feeling. Like, anger is okay, right? But sadness or fear, you know, no, that's, that's weak. And uh, and so again, in that sort of creating of a sentient culture, there is that tapping in. And uh, it's amazing how, quite by itself, it orients you, because the sensory aspect, right? The mental, the emotional, the sensory. Uh, there's not a whole lot of education about or tradition about in our culture. There seems to be a lot about sort of getting away from it, right, all our institutions with, you know, its geographic, geography and the way you sit in school and the way you wear a uniform in certain places, etc. But it really orients both our feelings and our thoughts when we begin to tap in into this sentient wisdom. And it wants to be met on its own terms, because it's so much bigger than anything you can throw at it. So this wisdom of sitting at the portal of inspiriting, inspiring, and expiring, outspiriting, of the breath coming in, being felt, moving through life. It's kind of a wordless place, it's rather lovely. Um, and there's some wisdom to sit, sit at the portal and do it regularly and let it instruct you. And it's, you know, it has its own language, it takes patience for sure.
1: Um,
0: And then, um, I think on that level of sentience, it's so much easier to feel kinship. That's always my experience when I sit with a group of people. How it holds me. How lovely that is. And and how there is an experience of kinship, of of sharing that intention. And um, I think it's in the South. I don't know. I'm not from this country somewhere. ESL might not serve me too well. I think it's in the South where you say, when you like somebody, I kin you. Is that right? You ever heard of that? Am I making it up? If I'm making it up, let's do it, because it's good. (laughs) 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 But some of the slang says, I kin you. Meaning, I like you. Meaning, I'm like you. Meaning, we're kind. We're one of a kind. And there's also other roots in the word that have to do, in Dutch it's ken, meaning to know. So there's a real uh, intelligence in the experience of kindness and in the expression of kindness that affirms the value of the species, of the group, of the the kind that we are. And so it's... uh, It's a lot deeper than just sort of something nice or something uh, sweet. It's that also, but there's a real intelligence to that experience of kindness. So maybe acts of kindness aren't as random as we are led to think by the bumper stickers but they're very cleverly uh, called in by people that are waking up to realize that. One experience that comes to mind is there's a, a new program that we started called Youth Out Loud in the prison. And it's a group of uh, young men that have asked to teach this class. They're uh, uh, youngsters that have come up through juvenile hall, a lot of them, and uh, are now in adult institutions, and this has been their lives uh, for some of them from 14, 16, on, or, or younger. And so, uh, since there was really nothing there for them in San Quentin, they decided, why don't we take our own predicament in our own hands? And and they asked for support to set up this program, and, and we were able to do that. And so now they're teaching each other. And it's just so exciting. Um, they sit in a circle, and uh, they get down. Really quickly. The two instructors, uh, in the last class shared a very personal story about their own lives. And it just set the tone. It you know, just set the tone. We're keeping the real in here. And, uh, one of the youngsters shared that, uh, his best friend was shot. And he knew he did it. And he's been doing some time and his girl, got pregnant. And he learned, she got pregnant uh, by the man who had killed his best friend. And so, um, he didn't want to have anything to do with her after he learned that. And as time has gone on, um, he's been getting letters from her and he hasn't written back. Uh, Until about six weeks ago, when he started considering writing back, and then writing back. And, um, And shared with the group his struggle. You know, like, okay, if I let this girl back into my life, you know, that's so against the street code. That's so against everything I grew up in. And then there's this little kid at some point, you know, am I going to be tempted to ask him, hey, where's your daddy? And it was just such a, a, a you know, regardless of what he'll end up doing with it, I just love the fact he was considering it out loud in front of his peers. And uh, it, it was very inspiring. <clears throat> As a, as a means to come together, to have that story right be at the center of it. And, you know, that type of reconciliation, uh, we're all so hungry for it. I mean, there's just so much fear-based behavior in this country right now. And so, the work with the victims and the offenders is, is very exciting for us. Um, we had a woman come into to our group who uh, had a son killed. She brought her husband and her 19-year-old son. This is at the end of 20 weeks of a small group of men really having faced their, their past, what they did. Wrote a crime statement, made a grief inventory. Really looked at what is it that brought me to this moment in which somebody was raped, kidnapped, or killed. They're severe crimes. And then we invite in a panel of victims that then um, aren't directly related to the case in this situation, but have gone through similar crimes. And then the victims tell their stories. And there's dialogue with the men. And then the men tell their stories about how they came to kill somebody. And there's dialogue about that. And in the beginning of this last cycle, there was a woman, and she said, I don't want to know anybody's name. I don't want to even look people in the eye. I'm angry at all of them. None of what you're going to say here is going to change my mind. My friends think I'm crazy, and, and I'm sitting here thinking maybe they're right.
1: Sure.
0: Certain tension in the room. So she told her story, and the other victim told her story. There was dialogue, and then the men began to tell their story. And uh, when the second man came around, uh, he had a very uh, impactful experience while he was sharing his story. He, it, something just hit him, probably for the first time, where he experienced a lot of emotion. Um, and that's some of the magic of bringing these groups together, where that can, that can happen. And uh, he had to stop. He was, you know, bending over. He had a lot of fluid coming out. And I was, we were all just sitting there because uh, this was not the kind of character that had that image connected to him. And uh, I looked, and I could see the face of of the woman, the victim, who said she didn't want anything. I could see her eyebrows go and back. And next thing, uh, it was as if something kind of pushed her. She got up, she walked across the room, she got on her knees in front of this man, held his hands, and said, "It's going to be all right. It's going to be all right." And it was like, "Whoa!" I mean, if the earth had liquefied, it would have been the same, <laughs> you know. Uh, France um, and you know it, it, it's an example of, of that sentience meeting each other you know, straight through all the judgment right which is basically you know an experience of unfelt fear I think and she uh, completely changed um, She wrote a beautiful letter about it. and uh, Pretty much has become an activist
1: for this type of uh,
0: exchanges. And so there's remarkable people walking everywhere. Among the guards, too. We had one who had his throat cut in the Jackson, 1976 Jackson uh, melee in San Quentin, in which a number of officers died when a few... um, he may stride to escape, and uh, uh, I didn't notice until after the fact. This is amazing, uh, but I got connected with a researcher who had done a uh, dissertation, PhD dissertation, on restorative justice, and he was invited to speak to the wardens, all 33 state wardens, and he asked if we would come along. And I said yes. And it's not. Too often we get to talk to the the kings of the castles, you know, I suppose. And, uh, turned out, I learned afterwards, he had his throat cut in that melee and was thrown upside down in the cell, was kind of close to cut, and that's how he survived. And so here's this man now, uh, he quit his job, and got a PhD in restorative justice, and is supporting us to and bring these programs into prison, and didn't say word. I learned afterwards. <laughs> he had the immediate respect of these warden okay, which was a wonderful open door for us to carry in Um So yeah, kinship, right? Intelligence. Another experience within that to just tell you a story. I think I I may have mentioned it last time I was here. We had, I met a woman at a dinner party who had a son murdered. And she, I said, you know, I want to, I want you to teach me that experience because I don't know about that. And so we met five times and we went over all of it. She showed the pictures, the newspaper clippings. She told me about not knowing what to do with the ashes. I mean I mean the details. Okay. And I did learn a lot. And she was a pretty remarkable person also. So then at some point she said, I think I'd like to come see where you play. And I said, All right. So I brought her into a group of lifers and she brought a quilt. Because so she had a quilt made for every year of her twenty one year old son's life. And she said it's for touching. And so she brought it in and it was passed around and so sofa. And a lot of healing came out of that. A lot of tears flowed that to me. And uh then for Thanksgiving, due to some uh, some connections and some magic, we were allowed to have a Thanksgiving meal, and she cooked a turkey and she put the gravy in thermos bottles because she knew by the time the food would all be checked and cleared, it would be cold. And so she had hot gravy for a group of 17 life sentence murderers. Now that's love, right? That's love. And then they received that. And um, about a year later, one of them said, you know, I think the anniversary of her son's death is coming up. Which is, uh, you know, a pretty good sign. Some quarter haven't gone down, right? All the way. And I checked and sure enough, it was ten years exactly. Yeah, so it was dead. And so we sat around and said, okay, well, what are we going to do? Let's do something like that.
1: And, uh,
0: so we decided to make a quilt for her. Uh, with some resistance because, uh, um, none of us are too, uh, Too crafty with needle and thread. Um, So we did. We collected things that were... We decided it could only come from the prison. So it was hankies, pieces of mattress. Uh, One guy took his pocket off his uh, favorite visiting shirt. And people would embroider on it or draw on it or write something on it. Whatever you could do, right? And... uh, and we cheated. We used a lot of glue, actually. <laughs> uh, but we put it together, and uh, and then invited her back, and and then unveiled this. And we had a little story for every little square. And uh, God, it was just so amazing—the healing that that you know keeps coming out of that. Because now, then she sent her daughter in. <laughs> so it just keeps uh, rippling. And it's, it's um, I think it's really based on uh, that willingness to uh, drop the judgment,
1: you know,
0: and, and connect with the sentient part, which is really kind of lower. You know, We we often talk about all of this in our heart, and it's true, that's, Part of it, but there's also this, particularly in prison, there's this kind of uh, place where you connect from. Um, so, anyway, you can imagine the privilege of, of being part of that, and, um, witnessing that. I thought I would uh, use some time for you to ask some questions. I'm not used to talking for like a whole hour. Um, so if you have some questions, then uh, and whatever they are. Okay, yeah, please. Oh, let's see. It's called Just Sit
1: There.
0: Just Sit There. Shall I do it one more time? Just sit there. Just sit there right now. Don't do a thing. Just rest. For your separation from God or your separation from awareness is the hardest work in this world. That's a good line, huh? Let me bring you trays of food and something that you would like to drink. You can use my soft words as a cushion with your head. You think it was uh, Wilhelm Reich who said, you know, we are who we are not so much because of what we do, but because of what we don't allow. you know that last instruction where i said just just sit back and let my love you.
1: why
0: not you know? please.
1: yeah please we don't allow ourselves to yeah Yes. yes, Yeah. yeah.
0: I said about it there, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there for the grace of God, go high. That's really true. It's a snippet, people. It's often just a snippet of losing, you know, a moment of loss of impulse control. Right? We call it, and you know, those of you who are married know what I'm talking about, or insignificant relationships, right? You have your triggers. You have your buttons. And it's pretty loaded, isn't it? Come on, nod your heads now. <laughs> <laughs> um, we talk about it as the moment of fatal peril, which comes out of a curriculum called Man Alive, which is, has a lot to do with sort of a gender-based view on uh, uh, male violence. And uh, there's kind of three characteristics that we found that are part of the moment of fatal peril. It's one is it speeds, everything speeds up. Two is life gets very intense. And three is there's usually a moment of regret afterwards. Right? And that's how quick it is. And um, we did this experiment once where, uh, with my life first group, I've been sitting with this same group for about six years, and there's 17, 18 men to went home. So when all 18 are there, there's over 400 years served in the room. And, and we did a little survey of, um, how long were you in your moment of fatal peril? In you know, the moment where that just preceded your crime, that led you to your crime. And we came to about 45 minutes. Okay, it's very impressive. <laughs> now I should say that, um you know, there's a, a social justice story in there as well, which is that the fact that life-sentenced men are not being let out in California. Their recidivism rate is below 1%. Nobody knows this. There's 27,000 men locked up for life in California, and very, very few of them are being released. 1,000, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's 170,000 people in prison. The prisons are 200% of capacity, overfilled, everywhere. Um, 70% comes back within 18 months. Not because they're all badasses, mind you, but to a large degree because there's no programs in prisons. Prisons are for punishment. You know, there's been a name change, but a name change only in the name of the department. And uh, the parole system is run by the same outfit as the prisons are run. So, you know, it's often referred to as the prison industrial complex, suffering as a commodity. So once, you know, to just follow up on your question, once you're in prison and you're in the system, it's very hard to get out. Um, so, yeah, it's pretty sobering. If you're African-American, is one of eight of you will do time in prison in, in the United States. So those are sobering numbers. And, and you know, we're there for the programs. But you can't do the ministry without the advocacy, or you're not half awake and looking at what's happening. So, thank you for letting me slip some of that in. (laughs) Please. Mm Right. Yeah. Yeah. How long has he served Mm you? Yeah. Well, you would you want to say something about the fire campus? Men get trained to do fires and they're, uh, firefighting and they're often called in in very serious fires. Um, yeah. Yeah, prison wages are usually below that, between 18 and 35 cents an hour. Um, but, you know, I don't want to, uh, completely just kick it all into the system because, A lot of your nephew might be part of this, of of what we're all learning, right? Prison not just being a a geographical uh, experience necessarily. Um, It's not circumstance, it's your stance. That's kind of one of our little slogans in there. You know, all of us in this room have these life, have these uh, rug-pulling experiences, right? Somebody you know has died. Somebody you know has cancer. Maybe you yourself have cancer, or some health challenge. Your relationship is having difficulties. I mean, you know, if we just name them, we could all, we'd all raise, raise our hand at some point. So you know, we all amble along, having a certain expectation of uh, what we think uh, could happen, and then. Right, one of these happens, and then another one. And so somewhere in there, there's an opportunity to say, okay, um, you know, as we talk about it in prison, okay, nobody gets to shake the deck, you know, nobody gets to shuffle the deck. You get a hand of cards, and uh, when you're young, you try to get another hand until you learn, okay, you know. That manipulation doesn't hold up. You get your hand, and what matters is to show up for it. Because showing up is big in prison. Who shows up for you? Who visits you? Who takes your calls? Sends you a package? And so, showing up, being present, um, so that at the end of your life, you know, it's not like okay, I look at my hand of cards, but hey, you know, I showed up for what I was dealt, and the quality of my life is connected. To my ability to be present to it more than anything. Okay, so prison has a real opportunity to teach that. Please.
1: (laughs) Uh mm-hmm. huh. Right. Uh
0: mm-hmm. yeah, huh. a deterrent. You know, it doesn't work very well because the very thing that leads you to be able to be punished is an irrational moment, mm-hmm. right? Now, as you get older, uh, I mean, even through the latest brain research, they realized as you get older, the ability to recognize your impulses before, you know, so we call it one, two, three, shoot, aim. Damn, right. So. The ability to get that order right, um, increases as you get older. Now, so my, you know, my answer would be no, it's not a great deterrent. However, I do see guys wake up around this two strike, three strike thing. Just because it's so severe. You know? And in a prison like St. Quentin, we have programs where we mix up the lifers and the youngsters. And so it's like in their face. And it's, there is, some deterrent that comes out of that, to be honest.
1: and an opportunity a little while back to visit the world of jail. And what struck me the most was the utter lack of privacy and what mm-hmm. seems to me being vulnerable in any way, and uh, just bearing the weight of having to protect yourself all the time. And it seems like there's a lot of powerful stuff that comes out of the photo, but I'm sort of wondering what it's like for the wren to open up in that vulnerable way in that
0: setting and then go back out into the that mm-hmm. really hard to have that kind of open. right right I could say there's a complexity to that there's a lot I could say to that the short answer would be that regardless of that the hunger for that is so great that we're finding and people that come in always are bowled over by that um that um, regardless of, of all that loss of privacy and, you know, armor that you have to don to be perceived a certain way, if it is felt safe in the group, the men will open up very quickly. Very quickly. Um, because, you know, the other side of it is, it's like, okay, if somebody's amped up by a crack addiction, you know, you don't want to be around that. But the other side of people struggling with impulse control is that there's a lot of beginning mind. Right? When they're not using and they're not uh, acting out, there's an immediacy and an honesty and a willingness that is hard to find in any group of, uh, let's say, uh, Bay Area group therapy participants. Just because they're new to it and there isn't all the barrier so it's interesting it's it's a layered layered situation now yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm mm-hmm yeah Mm -hmm. Mm mm-hmm right and you know I I think of it like that too all of us humans have hearts of lions just to make it through a day you know um But I'm also learning that um, if it's embodied, you know, if if you work through your fear, or even you're just accompanying it, it's a very strong uh, and contagious thing to do. Let me see if I can read something about it. It's called uh, by Mark Nepo. It's called the Rhythm of Each. I think each comfort we manage, each holding in the night, each opening of a wound, each closing of a wound, each pulling of a splinter or a razored word, each fever sponged, each dear thing given to someone in greater need, each passes on the kindness we've known. For the human sea is made of waves, that mount and merge till the way a nurse rocks a child is the way That child, all grown, rocks the wounded. And how the wounded, allowed to go on, rocks strangers who in their pain don't seem so strange. Eventually, the rhythm of kindness is how we pray and suffer by turns. And if someone were to watch us from inside the lake of time, they wouldn't be able to tell if we are dying or being born. Yeah. Right. Yes. Sure, sure. Well, because there's such long waiting lists everywhere, you know, for for uh, post-release resources, she actually gets to pick pretty good candidates. And why not, right? Um, but I do think that's an ingredient of her success, is that she gets to... People that um, have a, a chance of, of doing right, uh, but she runs a fantastic program. Right? You know, uh, absolutely. And uh, I mean, you know, look at it. You get, you go out, you get two hundred dollars gate money. Now, okay, San Quentin's our last metropolitan prison, I and mean, in the Bay Area, Avani working with San Francisco County Jail. There's a lot of resources here, but the rest of these prisons are out in the boonies. And so you're being brought to the bus station with $200 in your pocket and no programs, only punishment. Uh Pretty tough. Pretty tough. Okay, I mean, what do you do? I mean, he you know, he, he, $200, okay, so then you end up in the wrong hood in the motel room where there's uh you know, drug pushers and uh, prostitutes, and, and then in some places, just because they, the, the cities do sweeps, they call it sweeps, you, uh, you get picked up because you're on parole in the wrong neighborhood and you're back in prison. I mean, you know, if, if, uh, if you just came out and I owed you some money, I could call your parole officer and say, you know, and, and you, so you're saying, hey, you know, this would be a good time for me to get that money. I could call your parole officer and say, well, she's threatening me. Boom, you're back in. No due process. California, 2006. So, yeah, rules of the game are pretty severe. Please. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I love that honesty. Thank you. You're not alone, mind you. Let me see if I can speak to that a little bit. Uh, And then uh, I think that would be the last question. One of the uh, things we employ in the prison in the programs is what we call sitting in the fire. The ability to sit in the fire. And the idea is that there's two kinds of pain. One is the original pain, you know, what hurt you, right? And if you can't go in, through and out, then it burns clean and what's left is ashes. That sounds good, right? In the process, though, you think you're going to die feeling that. Seriously, die feeling that, like you are describing. You take bits, you know. You take bite sizes, and you don't do it alone. I don't. I've heard people do it alone. I've never met them. So, um, and you, and you, you know, you you go to that feeling, the fear, the rage, the anger, the sadness, and the feelings inside the feelings, and you do it as long as you can, and you take a break. The other option. Known as secondary pain or karmic pain is, uh, when instead of facing, you're running and hiding. So then, uh, in order to avoid feeling that original pain, you create a whole bunch of more pain. It's a longer cycle, and guess what happens when you come back? There's that pain to be felt, right? In this corner of the universe, when you look closely, feelings want to be felt. They don't need to be interpreted, by the way, or analyzed, or, you know, but they want to be felt. So, sitting in the fire and coming into acceptance, meeting it on its terms, not with, you know, your mind stories that prevent you from truly burning up, is is a real remedy. You know, let this problem have you. Die of vengefulness. And make a tea ceremony out of your vengefulness. And do you know, but be kind, okay? Don't, don't, uh, push yourself. This is a, this is a, a very deep offering you would give yourself if you could just let these feelings be felt. And then, you know, this too. This too. okay thank you for uh, your uh, your sentience togetherness here and uh, for uh, allowing me your welcome and um, until we meet again